0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast, which, well, depending on which feed you're hearing this, is actually also a military history visualized podcast, because I have Bernard here from military history visualized, who also has a podcast. And we thought about doing a small collaboration. Hi, Bernard. How are you?
0: Hello, Flo. I'm fine. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, if you follow Bernard's channel, you know that he usually follows, uh, well, World War II a bit more, sometimes Napoleonic Wars, but sometimes also the Cold War or even very, you know, post-1990 conflicts. And World War I is more like a small thing that we tackle together once in a while in a collaboration or so. Um, but actually, that's a good thing now, because we thought we'd talk about a bit about the similarities and the differences between World War I and World War II.
0: Exactly, and, and because there are many connections and, and some, in some cases there's this evolution going on why in other places you can see a clear differences.
1: I mean there's even the thesis I mean there's a book from Ian Kershaw, which you know was basically just about this topic from a few years ago where he said that you can also you know view the first the beginning of the first world war to the end of the second world War as one big 30 years conflict. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I never read into it. I heard it several times. I mean, to a certain degree it it makes sense in in some ways. If you look, for instance, at the Versailles Treaty, and basically the Germans prepared for another war to a certain degree. They were cheating it from a very get-go. I mean, which also made sense because Germany was not defensible under the Versailles Treaty. So and and the other way is of course nearly everyone who was a general involved too was a veteran of world war one yet the differences are also i mean if you look at the, at the situation who was allied with whom for instance japan was in the second world war on the Axis side was in the first world whatever on the Allied side with italy yeah they switched again so there's it's quite a similarity so it's 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 an interesting thesis, so you read into it, so w- what were the main points?
1: Yeah, I, st- I, st- I started reading the uh, the book and I think um, it mainly resolves about this kind of, uh, I mean the kind of, um, on a global scale kind of conflict like that, you had these kind of multiple superpowers uh, fighting each other and I mean, you know, even though the Weimar Republic and Kaiser Germany and then later Nazi Germany were different kind of um, stages of you know German German statehood development. You know, in the end, they were still like this kind of superpower thing. And um, even though the Austro-Hungarian en- Empire collapsed, um, you know, you still had Italy, and you had you know emerging Japan, and you had these kind of like big global players that, in some way or another, even between the wars, had some kind of things going on. And as we will discuss, you know, there is a lot of similarities. In both World War One and World War Two, but I also don't really completely buy into it. I think you know. I think you can make a case that World War One didn't you know end in 1918, but rather in 1922 or something, and you can make maybe a case that World War Two also didn't start in 1939, but maybe even earlier, so that the gap between the gap between the two is much shorter than you know what usually is said. But I don't know. I mean.
0: I mean, it gets really complicated because if you look at the Second World War, where you begin, you could say it, it began in 1931 if you look at the Pacific territory, because I mean, the Second Chino-Japanese War. Some argue it started in 19, uh, 1931, and others argue it's in 1937. So even so, you take an Eurocentric approach, okay? Then it's then it's different. If you take a global approach, it's very complicated. I mean, what would be interesting is if you look. If you see it more as a a conflict between Anglo and Germany, between England and Germany, because France and Germany were fighting all the time, and England and France were for a long time enemies. And with the First and Second World War, now France and United Kingdom, not England, were together in alliance. So in this case, you could say, okay, it was the Anglo-French-German War, or conflict time or something along those lines but before you had you had a different alliances because for a long time there was more of an alliance between Germany and the United Kingdom or the British Empire.
1: Yeah and I mean you can also make the case I think that also something that Kershaw said that basically the 1914 to 1945 era kind of marks this transitional period from away from you know, the start of World War One, you had these, uh, you know, empires with actual emper- emperors um, or, you know, colonial empires, this kind of, you know, older world order from the 19th century. And then it basically took World War One that already really changed a lot, but there were still a lot of things in, uh, intact, uh, mainly, for example, the French and the uh, British Empire and um, but then, you know, you have to have this, this period with civil wars and everything. You already have um, this kind of period where uh, colonial resistance starts, uh, like in India, but also in Africa uh, and everything. And then World War Two is like at the end another catalyst that, um, you know, takes a huge toll on the victors as well. I mean, you know, this kind of... I mean, the Great Britain was also basically bankrupt at the end of, end of World War One already. And... You know, by the end of World War II, you have this kind of, like, very new world order, you know, where, Ger- where Germany also de- isn't getting another chance to be on its own, but it gets occupied. Uh, Austria as well. And, uh, you know, a lot of the post-Austro-Hungarian countries uh, are re-established or established again. And uh, also on a colonial scale, you know, I, think, I mean, Indian independence is 1947, I think. So, you know, that, that that's basically then this really new kind of world order that we are used to emerged that is even more different from what the 19th century had. I think that's like, you know, there are certain continuities and everything, but uh, in the end, uh, I didn't really... I didn't read the entire Kershaw book so far. Maybe if uh, I did that, we could talk about it again. But I, I actually...
0: Have an interesting view because I just read uh, the global history from 1775 to to nowadays. I mean, just reading it, and, and if you look at the big picture now, from 1775 to 1945, you have you have the American independence, and back then, the British Empire was ruling completely, and with 1945, you basically have the end of the British Empire. Because you also have the austerity after the Second World War that there's quite um, quite a lot of poverty in in Great Britain and everything. And you have so basically you have to change from from the Anglo-American from from the America basically rises to the top, whereas British Empire basically declines. So you have have this long duration and change. And then and basically everything is enforced to a certain degree to the rise of Germany or Prussia. To the top, and and here everything is going on in Europe, and and everything is mixed. Yeah. So with the colonial aspects, yeah, that's quite interesting. I mean, you could also see the since a lot of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire became then um, the Eastern Bloc, you have. Is the question: Is this a new kind of colonialism or not?
1: Yeah. 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 It's. Um, I think in the end, it also you know strongly. I think it's an interesting thought experiment because it opens up the perspective because I think the answer to whether this is one ongoing conflict or not depends a lot on who you ask and which kind of perspective you take. I mean, the, the Japanese, for example, I think with them, it's a very good case because their kind of policy of um, the, what, what was it, the cordon of sovereignty and the cordon of defense, like basically this kind of policy that they developed shortly before or during World War One which basically meant that their, their own state territory is their cordon of sovereignty. And then there is a second layer around this, which is the cordon of defense, which is where they want to keep their eyes on and, you know, basically be ready to defend the, the homeland, uh, which also means that if you enlarge the territory, then that means that both these areas uh, get bigger, which is a kind of thing that, you know, since they were quite expansionist after World War I, you know then you know that, that you can see you can see a certain development there and I don't know if you talk to uh, I don't know like Poland for example I think um, with you know the the kind of I mean like after the 19 after they get their proper independence and everything and you have the the sit, you still have the situation that a lot of Germans lived there and these kind of like uh, referendums and a lot of political troubles and everything and it was still kind of a period of unrest and trying to, you know, develop this kind of new country and everything. So for them, it, of course, also makes sense to say this is like a 30-year kind of thing. And I think with, you know, maybe some other countries, it doesn't make that much sense. I mean, like, especially with Germany, you know, the differences from uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Hohenzollern Germany to the Weimar Republic to the Third Reich are quite... I mean, even though they are also connected because they came one after another, they are quite different in, you know, if you want to analyze them and everything and, and their behavior.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's th- this is quite complicated because if you look at, uh, for instance, at the generals in the Second World War, a lot of them were still basically um, thinking in the imperial way of the Kaiser and everything.
1: Uh, that's also true, yeah. So, so, this, from, from, yeah, so, the, so that's also the, the thing, if you look at it militarily or... You know, socially or culturally, or something. And I think so. In that sense, I think this hypothesis from Kershaw um, is is a, is a good thought experiment because it you know turns uh, a lot of pr- some perspectives you have about these two conflicts a bit upside down. And uh, I think also um, it helps going against this kind of narrative that you see in a lot of documentaries or other things where you basically you know we may. You start with uh, the attack on Poland. Uh, in the first shots you, at because yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, because because I mean that you know that's like maybe from a military standpoint that makes sense to watch you know to have a look at World War Two in that sense. But you know it, that didn't have happen in a vacuum or out of yeah. nothing. There was a lot of development before that, and it's always helpful to not forget these. Years between World War One and World War Two to kind of see the uh, analyze this kind of development.
0: I don't think even it makes sense from a military perspective. It makes sense from a tactical perspective. I intentionally left out the shots of Westerplatte when it began in my in my video on Poland because I did the whole campaign, and and it doesn't really matter where the first shots were fired. Usually, it's for me it's Trivia. That's that's it's it's like a detail which doesn't bring you any understanding of the conflict. I mean, and since you brought up Jap- um, Japan before, I mean, you could also take the look of the resources, that everything was about resources, because Japan was very low on resources on the home islands. So that, to a certain degree, they needed to expand, or depending on their fuel, and you have the this, this similar problem for Germany, for instance, that a lot of resources, usually oil was lacking, rubber and other aspects. So, and some actually can look at this and say, okay, this was a resource conflict. And if you look, for instance, at um, Smedley Butler, the, the highly decorated U.S. Marine, he, he wrote the book, um, War as a Record. And, and I think it's all the focus is mo- mostly on re- uh, acquiring um, resources or economic benefits by invading or doing certain interventions in other countries. And I remember I asked on Reddit on the uh, U.S. Marine uh, unofficial Reddit and, and I asked him if they know him and if they read the book and, and some said, yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of obvious that you fight wars to get resources. It's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that that's commonplace. This is also how how you view this. versus others, it's the same with the Cold War. There are like 100 schools or 1,000 different schools how to interpret the Cold War. Was it a cultural war? was about politics, was about resources. I mean, there's even one theory that, that the main player was Europe and not the and not America and not the Soviet Union, which, because if, if you see it, it was all about Europe to a certain degree. So so it, these perspective, it, it gives interesting thoughts, also the, the long duration. As you see, if you if take it longer from 75 to 1945, then you see something different if you just look for 30 years. And and I think the the very good point is that seeing wars as isolated instances makes very little sense. I think this is the main point we should get out of this.
1: Yeah, uh, that's true. And and I uh, you know I agree with this also more modern approach to military history that you also need to look at um, cultural aspects and social aspects and you know how societies got affected and everything. I mean it's like it's a bit of a um, um, a sad thing that on youtube and you know reddit and this kind of thing and you know when i do my social media work and everything that you know the posts where you know we do, you see weaponry and tanks and everything and action is happening you know these get the most likes and shares and everything compared to you know if you if you do like a small background post which takes a, bit, a lot more research um or just talk a bit about you know civilians or you know pe- people uh, internally deep displaced people or something who are you know, affected by the war. that Nobody cares about that, apparently. I mean, it's like, a, um, you know, if you look at the social media engagement, at least no one cares about it. It gets much less uh, traffic and everything. But it's still important to, you know, don't reduce your view on war just on, you know, this division was there uh, and did that and everything. I mean,
0: this is an interesting aspect because in, in German, we, we make a distinction between Militärgeschichte and Kriegsgeschichte, so military history and war history. And I asked Justin Lately, who who did his um, master's in history and with a strong focus on military history in Canada, a- and he noted, or at least he wasn't aware that there was this distinction in the English world. It doesn't mean that's not there because I only asked him and was on the side, maybe he missed something, but, but this is the aspect of military history, you have the social aspects, organizational aspects and everything else whereas in war history originally you were focused on the operational, tactical, strategic aspect. And, and this is also where, to a certain degree, you have this change between the First and the Second World War because after the First World War, many realized, okay, we need to take more into account the industrial side and the economic
1: side. And because it was total war.
0: Yeah, because it was total war and, and, and disorder. this was, to a certain degree, what was winning. And for instance, the, the British and the Americans in their war academies they added special courses and everything whereas the Germans were more reluctant and only had a short amount of time in this
1: yeah I mean like um, you know that's like a good similarity um, in World War I and World War Two is to see the kind of industrial uh, output kind of lifeline from the US uh, to Great Britain in that sense I mean like the I mean you could can argue that the you know milit- military industrial complex, as it's called, um, in the U.S. started during World War One because they had so many contracts to produce weaponry and ammunitions for you know the British, but also to the, I think they also gave weapons to the French. Uh, they had, you know the Latvian riflemen had like Winchester rifles. And uh, but it was also much more. You know, it was war material. It was uh, raw food supplies uh, and everything. And um, you know, this kind of development, you know, contributed greatly. I think to to the to the victory uh, of of the Entente in the West, because I mean, you have these stories that in 1918. Um, when the german soldiers uh, attacked in the spring offensive in the kaiserschlacht uh, that you know they came across these uh, supply stashes from the from the allies and basically the officers had problems maintaining discipline because the soldiers were you know pretty hungry and just you know needed to have a <laughs> had a break and went into this, these stashes and you know ate f- properly for a while which was great for them but then you know afterwards it sank in okay it's four years of war now, and we kind of assume that our enemy is in the same same state as we are, you know, which is like a lot of, you know, food replacement material, uh, you know, no material for leather uh, buttons, no rubber and everything. But actually, you know, this kind of supply stash is just behind the front, which they just left in their retreat because apparently it wasn't that important for them as a, as an objective. If they have that, actually, then we're screwed.
0: Yeah, yeah, the evidence on the one side. I mean, you have the same with, with land lease in the Second World War. Land lease in total was around fifty billion U.S. dollars, and I think around thirty thousand of thirty billion went to the United Kingdom. So, and about ten to the Soviet Union, and the rest was was diverted everywhere else. And and this was was a major contribution. I mean, I have a video out on this, and today comes another one out, and and. And actually, there's no consensus, for instance, for the Soviet Union, if it was crucial or not. Some argue it was like, did, uh, they would have lost in others say, okay, they would have won. Definitely, it would have just taken a few months more. And these are both experts to a certain degree in this area. So, so is, and, and, and again, if you, if you take the longer picture, as you said, um, the British Empire was basically bankrupt at the end of World War One. And in, in the Second World War, land lease was introduced because there was no much more money or gold in England in the British Empire to finance the war. So without land lease... No,
1: or such such a, such a colossal war. Yeah.
0: Again. again. It was like, I mean, originally it was cash and carry. So they had to pay. I don't know if they really had to pay in cash. But originally, and then they, they switched to land lease and basically... Not sure how much they got back, but I think it was r- very limited. I mean, they had the destroyers for basis contracts and other elements. So so you have this intensification. I mean, this is actually, um, I mean, that's the thing. World War One is not really popular, whereas World War II is really popular. And I have this, I thought about this, and I think I have a kind of analogy. It's basically, you see, World War One is like a computer. And World War II is a computer with internet access. So as long, once you had a computer, it was great. You played games, you did your stuff in Word or Excel. But once you have a computer with internet access, you, you can't go offline anymore if you, have a, if you had internet yeah. access. Yeah. And, and you have this intensification on all sides in the World War. For instance, the air war was basically, yeah, it was rather rudimentary. The same with the, with the war with, with, with tanks. And second, where you have everything on on the max level, but still you have man and machine. Whereas later on, you have more machine. You have computers and everything else. And I think this is what 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 attracts Volvo too so much because you have the the aspect of man and machine more or less equal. So you need both, and and they are on a, on a, you could say on a same uh, more or less same le- uh, level. And also, it, it's way more intensified. You have you have the Nazis, you have the Soviet Union. Because if you look at World War One, you, it's hard to say who is well. I, I don't like the term, but you don't have an evil guy. And 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 also and also, not so nuance because for the Soviet Union, it, it's it's a really hard call here. So you have this it's enemy. I mean, the Allies in 1940 thought about bombing the Soviet Union. They thought about the
1: supplying. I mean, didn't 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 Churchill also think about uh, uh, continuing the war uh, in 1946 with, uh, you know, the remnants of the Wehrmacht and basically what they had left in Europe and just uh, pushed the Soviets Operation
0: back? Operation unthinkable. I, I never read into this too much. I, I know that, I think there's one quote that, but, but I never read it, so I'm not entirely sure, but the reference that Churchill, okay, we killed the wrong... The wrong pig or something, we slaughtered the wrong pig. And I, I wouldn't be so surprised. Yeah. So and, and the other aspect is of course, before night before Barbarossa, the Soviet Union was seen more as an enemy by the allies. We think about bombing it, we were thinking about intervening in the winter war and everything else. And then then suddenly it becomes an, an ally. And, and if if you look if you look at Lanley specifically, even after Germany was defeated. The United States shipped a lot of, a lot of trucks, a lot of equipment, still to the Soviet Union till the Japanese surrendered. So, and and I talked with, with Gian Greco, the, the author of Hell to Pay, and he noted this was kept more silent because at at this point it was like, okay, this was not seen so well because defeating defeating Germany was okay, but. But the other stuff continuing after Germany with the Soviet Union, well, because the, the Cold War developed shortly afterwards.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that, that, that's a that's a good way to put it. With you know the kind of like you're basically turning it to eleven, you know, World War II. And I think you know, in, of course, in a lot of personal things, it's more relatable. You have more photos of relatives and your family and everything. And um, that kind of thing and you know with the thing with you know the technology aspect also m- makes it more relatable from our modern perspective here. I mean World War one technology you have a lot of things that you know start existed like I you don't know you've code breakers um you know you start and the end of the, a lot of things happened in the end of the war that are quite relatable I mean the french had their first uh Renault FT variant that uh, tank that variant that had uh, wireless communication on it already uh, and everything you had, I don't know, Like I, I, one of the p- best examples I think, in, you know, where it's f- on the first glimpse, it o- almost matches one to one, is like submarine warfare. Um, because you have this, you know, it's the same kind of um, development in both wars. You have the Germans using, you know, overestimating what they can achieve with the submarines, so they're building, trying to build quite a lot with them. Then they're actually in a few months puts a lot of pressure on allied shipping and convoy, uh, allied shipping and everything. Then the British basically, uh, the British and the Americans do the same thing. They develop the, they come up with a convoy system, which is quite ironic since, you know, you know these kind of things don't happen simultaneously, but 30 years apart, but apparently no one studied it enough so that they would start shipping uh, w- with convoys right away in World War Two, which is something that is a bit puzzling. But you know, this convoy
0: actually it did. This was okay,
1: but then then it then it didn't properly work at le- uh, at least. And maybe the Germans had a, a, a new tactical development here or something. That uh, you know, that's just a very superficial. Um, well, way for I, me to I look actually in.
0: did a video where I compare both, so, so I, I want to go a bit into deeper here. So initially, in both uh, in World War One and World War Two. The Germans were actually rather reluctant or have very few submarines. So in World War II, they had very few. I mean, they were not reluctant to using them, but in World War I, they were. And then the British actually, yeah, were extremely reluctant to introduce the convoy system in World War I. I think it took until 1917. And, and, and the interesting thing here is that because they, they created a convoy, the submarines couldn't attack them, and the sing, there were basically no single ships, so the oceans were mainly empty. So they were always attacking targets of opportunity and if, if they're not in combo they're not there. In the second world they introduced the combo system rather fast and by the way combo system was not an invention of the first world but this, this was actually used long before and successfully also and, and this is also quite puzzling why why the British Admiralty took so long to... to
1: okay. To, maybe to that's ex- something we can talk about later. It's like this kind of learning curve and you know, feedback feedback loop system and everything. That's like very interesting to talk about. But uh, yeah, continue.
0: And and then you have so and and the the wolf pack tactic was basically that you use several submarines to attack a convoy. The idea was already there in, in World War One. The yeah, they used it the the in
1: 1918 already, I think.
0: I think they never. I think from what I remember, they they had the idea, but there was a change in leadership and. The main problem was was the uh, radios there was a limitation with the radios
1: yeah that's true but I think it I, I think there was at least one attack in like very late in the war where it didn't really matter but I think there was at least one semi coordinated attack but, yeah the communication was an issue but there was at least you know they, I think they at least tried it out and saw the shortcomings but you know the the, the idea was there already. yeah
0: and in the first and uh, the second world war the first Wolfpack attacks actually were not successful and originally they wanted to coordinate them locally, and then they realized, okay, uh, our radius is strong enough, we coordinate everything from land, which is c- quite counter to it if you think about it. But they just sent the commands from the land, and then when the submarines engaged, they were basically on their own and sent some information sometimes back. But there was no local coordination because this was originally planned, but they realized if one of the subs that was the commander had to submerge, it couldn't coordinate anymore. And, and during it sitting in Germany or France, he, he didn't have to dive. So, and, and the radio was strong enough. And for First World War, you had this problem that the radios weren't that powerful and also not that small. So this is also, I think, one of the m- most important technological changes between the, the two wars was active radio, because it allowed submarine warfare, it allowed... It allowed um, tank warfare, armored warfare. It allowed coordination between the air and the ground forces. Yeah, this is the most underappreciated technology because everyone, everyone thinks about Stukas, about Panthers and everything else. But take away the radios from the Stukas and the Panthers, and not much is going to happen.
1: Yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, so but you know maybe that still makes it a very good example because I think like you know superficially. You know, there is is this similarity, you know, in development and everything. Um, Another aspect is also, you know, I think uh, the depth charge was also something that they came up with in World War I. And uh, another major thing, I think, is um, uh, air superiority. You know, in World War II they uh, they had these special kind of bombers uh, and uh, fighter planes if the submarines were close uh, to fight them from the air. And actually they did that in World War One as well, you know, just with airships and, you know, this more, you know, fighter plane is a more relative term, of course, uh, to in World War One. But they still tried it and they, you know, tried these kind of things like uh, airborne operations, you know, have basically have seaplanes um, that could be lowered from a ship or that, you know, since a lot of stuff was happening in the channel that could take off from the naval bases uh, and everything. Yeah, here you
0: can see a clear evolution you had. In the first world, basically nothing was sunk by airplanes. And in the second world, it was until 1943. So that the planes or the airships always forced the submarines underwater, which made much more trouble. But once around, I think 1943, the aircraft then became really sub-killers. Before, it was a major inconvenience, but then they were like, basically okay we, we kill them now and and their technology was not there in the first yeah.
1: world war yeah that's true and uh, but yeah i think you know this kind of submarine thing is very um, you know very interesting is it who was actually the from what i understand the kaiser was a huge advocate of the submarine like he was very impressed with this kind of weapon when it was demonstrated to him was it the same thing uh, with uh, Hitler actually being a fan of of it and pushing for this kind of warfare?
0: I'm not so well. I I thought actually that the. I I don't know what with the Kaiser, but yeah, with Hitler it was like. I actually don't know what what the the position was. I mean, he, he was, I think originally he was really into big battleships and everything, but. I know later on in the war, he was really pissed at one point, and he wanted to scrap the whole surface fleet. And only it, and only Donitz the original commander of the submarine of arm um, and then of, of the Kriegsmarine completely, only he convinced him to not scrap the ships or something. So I don't know, Hitler was very fond of pants about submarines. I can't give you a, a clear answer on this.
1: No, maybe, maybe that's also a good similarity. It's like the, the, the I mean, the, the at least perceived inaction of the surface fleet, of the German surface fleet, is also maybe a good parallel between the two wars.
0: This is actually different because in the Second World War, the Kriegsmarine was extremely active. There's one book which actually, I think, states that the Germans engaged in the most or, or extremely or nearly every time. So, I mean, there was the Tirpitz, which everyone thinks about. But if you look at nearly a lot of other ships, they were nearly sunk in battles or something. I mean, you have it, at Narvik, I think they lost 10 destroyers. You had was the Gneisenau was damaged. I always mistake them because, yeah, sister ships and, and the Bismarck is sunk. The Admiral Graf Spee is sunk. So there's a lot more going on, and and Radar wrote in his diary in the early early beginning of the war, the only thing we can do is die gallantly. And I think this was in reference to the First World War, because in the First World War, the the major fleet was sitting around all the time, and in the Second World War, they have the small one, and they say, okay, now we must fight, because, well, else we saw what happened in the First World War. I think this was also influenced from that.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, um, that's true. That's true. Um, that's. I mean, you know, th- at that uh, the one point in October when they were sent out to die, uh, then the the sailors weren't weren't really down with it, as we know from history.
0: Yeah. I mean, at at this point, it's a bit late. I mean, this is also the the aspect of the First World War that uh, the that, uh, German Imperial Fleet is mainly sitting around after Skagerrak or oh, Battle of Jutland in, in English. Yeah. Yeah, sky actually,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite, it's, uh, there's a lot of this um, fleet in being or power in being concept, especially, I mean, it's even, you know, you could say that, you know, b- because of the submarines, you know, there was at least, and, you know, things like Jutland or uh, Heligoland in the in 1914, you know, there was at least some naval action uh, and everything, but I think, you know, the Austro-Hungarian fleet was basically completely blocked off in in, in the Adriatic Sea. And you know there, there was also you know Austro-Hungarian submarines and, and everything, but you know and the one really the real development there was basically when the Italians uh, developed these motor boats that uh, could do these hit-and-run attacks. Uh, but you know you never have these kind of. I think you have even less naval engagement with major Austro-Hungarian ships in the Mediterranean than you have major naval engagements between the Germans and the Brits in, in, in the North Sea.
0: Yeah, it's kind develop this these huge arm races, arms races with, with with fleets and everything and then they they almost don't use them. And, and as far as I remember, Radar, the, the head of the Kriegsmarine for a while, he developed this this view that although Germany has so, so few surface ships, if they send one out and they have it somewhere like like Admiral Graf Spee in the South Atlantic, the British need to send so many more ships to find it and to cover it that they actually, with the dispersion of the few ships they have, they, they take away a lot of fighting power fr- from the British fleet.
1: So, so, yeah, so it's, a, it's a more clever use of this. I mean, that's also, you could say, an evolution, because, I mean, the, the idea was that, you know, to have these huge surface fleets in World War I was to have a potential threat. I mean, you couldn't ignore them. You would you need to kind of match them in tonnage and armor, uh, armament and everything, because if you didn't, then they could actually do stuff. But if you matched them, then you could just have them yeah, you <laughs> sit have... there as a potential threat, which was in inignorable. But it was also, I think, it's uh, they were probably also way too expensive, at least in the first years, to you know sacrifice them in air, air quotes uh, in battle. And when they were kind of getting obsolete, then you could do more creative things like the Dardanelles campaign and everything. You know, where it's where it's like, okay, we use these kind of ships which are obsolete anyway, and. It's cheaper to scrap them and more efficient than the war you know, to, to actually use them.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one aspect which is brought up several times, which I, I never investigated further. But there was always this, this problem, if you, you lose a capital ship, that there's the morale and the effect. But I assume that, that this was actually not really a major problem. Because, yeah, you, you, you lose a lot of sailors and everything, but compared to what you lose on land. So it was more, I think, of a prestige thinking, more on, on the side. Of course, yeah, the, the issue is a, a battleship takes several years to build. But at the same time, you, you're you fighting a, a world war and you are killing or getting killed, killed millions of men. So there's always, I think, in the in the first World War, they were way more reluctant. And in the second World War, they were mostly, okay, we have them. They were was probably okay. We had them in the first world, but we didn't use them. Okay, now let's hit every, bring everything to action because else it's just wasted anyway.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, I mean, generally resources is of course also the next big thing you can talk about. Um, you know, in terms of um, Germany not having them mainly. That's like that's like a good parallel. I mean, the the we're going to have an episode where I talk with Indy here on the podcast feed, uh, either after this is published or right before, where we talk a bit about Baku because that's that was like a topic that none of us really didn't know about. But you know, the Baku oil fields, this kind of um, scenario where there was like, you know, the, it it wasn't a major battlefield or or anything in World War One, but you know, there was. Definitely, everybody had their eyes on it on a strategic and operational level. Like, uh, I mean, you have the Brits who have the South Persian uh, oil fields and everything, and you could, you know, there's, you know, you could argue that uh, the, you know, the Mesopotamian campaign where they, you know, there there were in the Middle East two theaters from the from the British. One was, you know, in Palestine, and the other one was in what is now Iraq. And, you know, you could basically say that they tried to invade from there, A, to also get the Iraqi oil fields in the south, and B, also to be able to defend their oil fields in southern Persia. And then you have these kind of oil fields in Baku, um, which, you know, at some point, I think the the new Bolsheviks, Soviets were interested in it. Um, There was uh, 300 British men defending them uh, from the Ottomans, the Germans actually fought the Ottomans over it because they wanted to have them before the Ottomans get them because they didn't think the Ottomans would, you know, be able to use them because, you know, their complete lack of infrastructure. And uh, Romania has oil fields. I think they even have some minor, some oil extraction nowadays. So, um, and the Germans, you know, definitely... Uh, had their eyes on that when they invaded Romania, and there was actually a kind of, um, you know, the Romanians, when they withdrew, did did some sabotage there, so that would take the Germans longer to build up the extraction process and the refinery again. And, you know, if you look at these kind of components, and, you know, of course, also, you know, northern French uh, iron ore and, you know, these kind of things. And, you know, of course, you know, the biggest point in points of resources being the British blockade. You know that definitely largely contributed to you know the 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 war of attrition being in favor of the Allies than uh, than for Germany.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this was also this was of course completely on Hitler's mind. I mean, he he wrote he wrote Mein Kampf and he wrote um, a second book, which is also referred to, to the second book because I think it was never published. And, and he argued in there that that America is a sleeping giant and. Once it turns out outward, it will it will be very hard to defeat. And and he he had basically this notion: you have to have the resources of a whole continent to fight America. So this was the whole idea, to a certain degree, to to conquer all of Europe. I mean, this this was not to a certain degree. I, this is the thing with Hitler: he had sometimes plans, and then he had new plans, and so sometimes there's this grand strategic view he was sometimes quite correct but if you look at certain operations and stuff that happened it was not sometimes in this whole aspect and sometimes it just developed this way so for instance France nobody suspected they would beat them in six weeks and everything they thought okay we'll, we will lose about I think one million men and and another aspect so and you have the Romania with the plus the oil switch, which was very important Baku of course was also for the case blue for the which ended in Stalingrad in 1942 for the summer offensive, um, and also I think in the original Barbarossa plan, yeah, it was also the Astrakhan-Archangel line, and basically Moscow and everything is lying behind that or in front of that, depending from which side you look. So basically, it would assume that you would take all all these resources, and also the the whole food issue. So I mean, there was there was starvation and everything in the First World War. And for the Second World War, they, they went the other route. So basically, I think in the First World War, the policy was first we feed the local population, then we take out as much for the army as we can, and then we ship home if we still have surplus. Well, in the Second World War, it was for March part, okay, first the army, second the home front, and then the local population or something. I, I, at least not so direct, but the priority was clearly shifted, and you saw this with... with the how, how much hunger and everything, and, and the civilian deaths in occupied territories was going on. I mean, especially the former Soviet Union, and also but Greece and other areas, where you have a, a lot, a very high death toll due to this. But they focus okay on a, on a different kind of warfare and everything.
1: Yeah, that basically is, um, yeah. I mean, I, from what I re- read, it was also not as clear-cut with, you know, organizing the home transport in World War II. But from the huge problems they had after Brest-Litovsk, which were that, you know, they drew on paper and said like, okay, great, we have Ukraine now. And then basically on paper, Ukraine extracts, you know, harvests that much grain. And then we can basically just, you know, have huge surpo- have a huge surplus that we can feed our home population with. And then we can, you know, have to prolong the war into 1919 and or, you know, negotiate peace from a position of strength, which by that time also some people said um, should be a viable option. But it turned out that, you know, Ukraine was basically just this power vacuum after, you know, the desolation of imperial Russia. You had the Bolsheviks, you had the, the Black Army under, under Magno, um, you had these kind of you had know, the the Cossack the Cuban Cossacks, and you know I think there was even some other Cossacks, and you had the the green army and the whites, and everything was just a huge power creep you know you could argue i think d j Meyer in the world undone also drives home that point a, a lot is that this kind of uh, the Ukraine situation and the reliance on the Ukrainian grain after brest-litovsk developed into this power creep that. So you had this power vacuum, you had all these factions fighting each other, you know, there was armored trains, sabotage and everything. Um, You know, a lot of, you had the, um, it was also this, uh, you know, origin of a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of, you know, civil war kind of violence, executions, that kind of thing. And if you just envision this kind of total chaotic situation, there is no way you can actually, A, even harvest maybe not even planned if you go into 19, in, the, in the into the next season but you you cannot even properly harvest the kind of grain that you had on paper that R- imperial russia ukraine had on paper in 1916 so at some point the germans had to send like um, you know a division to 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 kharkov to you know bring so, some order uh, into the region so that there could actually even be a harvest let alone having the infrastructure to transport that grain in meaningful quantities to Germany, where it would have, you know, some kind of effect and everything. And I think this kind of clusterfuck of a situation basically also informed a lot of the, you know, very harsh policies that they wanted to, you know, enforce in World War II when they occupied Ukraine. Though, you know no fairly knowing that, you know, it wasn't as clear cut in World War II as well because they were, you know, there were the, you know, the player the pe- the players from the industrial from the from the German industry that, you know, called dips on a lot of things and then you had the army who had certain needs and you had also had all kinds of supply problems in World War Two there as well. So it wasn't that, you know, they on paper they learned their lesson, but you know, when they when it was about to implement it, you know, it also didn't work out that well.
0: Well, and that's quite interesting. Um, there seems to be a, a clear similarity and a clear difference here. From from what I know, I mean, I, I never read too much into this so far because it's it's basically Vernichtungskrieg, um, Holocaust, and everything with the whole exploitation issue. And but from what I know, that worked rather well. So, but I, I never knew that there was such chaos in World War One. So the question is, if they do their lessons, probably they did. Now, the main similarity which I see, which which I found always quite interesting, which is both on German and the Japanese side, that they always saw, okay, if we conquer this, we have it on paper and then we have it. And for, for me, this was always like, this was always like, I thought this was computer game thinking. And, and for me, it was like, did, did, did the Imperial Japanese Army headquarters and Hitler did, did play computer games, but they didn't have computer games back then. You just conquer this region and you, you have it on paper. So, so, this was qu- quite interesting because it's like they never thought about the logistical aspects that you need to convert the oil, for instance i mean, in, in the end, the Japanese I think are pumped in the raw oil into into their ships, yeah, and because they didn't have a refinery there and and they couldn't transport it over because they didn't have any 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 merchant vessels anymore because they were sunk. I was like okay and and, and this was always you read this and they always see okay we have it on paper and we think we and we have it instantly to a certain degree and and, and this is still baffling to me because if they had played computer games I would understand it yeah if if it nowadays like okay we knew hitler played hearts of iron or he played civilization then i would say okay he was just thinking like in his old in his mind he had some some these these thinking thoughts going on but this wasn't the case, clearly not, because the games were published uh, published a few years ago. So, so I, ne- I I don't really know why they were thinking on, on this level, because
1: I mean, I mean, but I mean, they had war games to a certain uh, extent for planning and everything. And uh, I don't know the the thing you just described just reminds me of this uh, famous memeified scene from Der Untergang uh, from the downfall where he moves around these kind of figures on the map and says like okay this division is going to do that and that and that and then we're going to turn the tide and then his generals tell him okay but you know these divisions just exist on paper to make you happy (laughs) for
0: counterintelligence yeah
1: yeah yeah Um, yeah so I I think that's a very good um, yeah it's it's Cool. It's, it's again. It's like it's cool seeing the the similarity, but if you dive deeper into it, you know there is a lot of differences and everything. So um, yeah, the the resources are definitely like a very good uh, talking point and everything. And I I, I recently read this um, um, you know this essay collection from which was published. Uh, in the in the '90s, which uh, was around the time from uh, when the Wehrmacht exhibitions uh, happened, and you know when this whole debate happened in Germany about you know Einsatzgruppen and this kind of thing, and there was also a bit about um, the connection between, which I think also is a similarity, but also with key differences, is the connection between basically. The German army and the German state and the German command that wages this war and their relation to basically the industrial complex, like you know who they need to build their tanks and you know you have Kulp, you know who builds the artillery and uh, and everything and these kind of um, you know official connections between them, but which also turned out to be quite nepotistic sometimes, which then created uh, huge inefficiencies. Um, and everything and also these kind of like uh, a lot of people owing each other favors and everything and from what I understand that a lot of um, you know industrialists and industrial companies were already promised huge things from the attack on the Soviet Union in 1941 that they also immediately after the success of you know when the invasion went quite well in the early stages they already called in and you know asked so you know about this favor you us. can you guarantee that we get these and these resources. And they already called dips on certain things, which then also, you know, further complicated the whole supply line issue in World War II. And I think in World War I, you have this kind of uh, similarity that sometimes the if you look at German tank development, you know, the A7V, they only built 20 of them. They were ha- handmade, basically. But uh, when we talked to uh, Ralf Ratz from the German Tank Museum, he told us about all these kind of tank prototype projects, which were basically... Going on by the fact that you know some some engineer from Krupp or some you know some of these fa- uh, factories in Upper Silesia were basically just uh, developing this idea and then they went to one guy in the in, in the war department and he said no and then they would just go to another guy from the like, and, and then he he might have said yes and they they developed this complete life on their own and there was no proper coordination and oversight uh which you know basically then in world war one leads to you know a lack of tank numbers though they had some you know interesting tank tank design ideas and then world war ii i think it leads to these how many editions of some tanks you have like these a to f numbers and everything
0: yeah i mean the, the a to f and, and something they, they make sense that uh, increase but there are a lot of Paper projects and some something else, and it's also quite, quite quite complicated. Markus Pullman writes about this with the relation between Ferdinand Porsche and Hitler and 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 these aspects. I mean, to a certain degree, I'm not too well read in this, but um, one interesting aspect is that after the First World War, the Germans realized, okay, in mobilization efforts, in war mobilization of the industry. The role model is now the United States of America, because they did really well. And and the key figure here is General Thomas, and from where Rüstungsamt changed the name and something, and and he went there and said, okay, you are a role model, and and they looked at how how this was done. But there was this problem in Germany, the the battle between the Operatoren and Logistiker, the operational guys, basically military fighting on, on the operational level. And the logisticians or the, the economics guys, you have these professionals. And, and the Germans still, and to a certain degree, this to a certain degree probably also the, um, explains the reluctance of opposition against Hitler. They are basically like, don't concern yourself with stuff that is not in your department. Like, don't economics and politics. Don't don't care about this. Because this is not what a was a soldier, an officer cares about. We're about fighting a war. We are fighting on a tactical operational level. We don't care about grand strategy. We don't care about economics. So they were to a certain degree bullied. And and then you you have this this aspect going on as well. So and with the industry, from what I read, basically it was kind of you had the United States, for instance, which was mainly were, were the, the civilians were sometimes put into general positions, that you have managers in in very high officer rankings, so that the command, the military, to a certain degree, can say, okay, no, we don't build this. We build, we we know how to build. We how we know how to mass produce, and you tell us what you need, and we make some compromise. And then you had the Soviet Union to a certain degree, which was far more. Top-down, but there's also some discussion how much is true where, where there was this command economy. And Germany was some weird mixture in between, like as I say, nepotism and yeah, these and, and that. So, so some because some people think always like um, Germany under Hitler was like this, this totalitarian where everything was perfectly controlled by Hitler or something, which is which is not true. Basically, Hitler was. Having his different realms, and he had his different guys like Goering and and Himmler, and and they were fighting infighting against each other, which which worked perfectly well till the war started, because then you had you had everyone was was concerned with with his turf and not threatening Hitler, but when you start a world war, and you need to be efficient and effective, and you have always this this infighting going on and 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 no clear focus, and then. It backfires. So whereas, whereas the Soviet Union was, from what I know, far more streamlined in that regard. Of course, they always did the great purge in something, which also drew away a lot of, of resources, or not resources, but human resources. So, of, of course, there's all the discussion on how effective or ineffective, this, uh, what the effectiveness were of this.
1: Well, they they got they got the hang of it by 1944, I think, right? Uh, I think uh, the the numbers of uh, Flak 88 they produced in 1944 in and I and I, I read recently, you know, since I investigated my great grandfather a bit, um, that the industrial area in uh, in Silesia they produced Flak 88 basically until the Russians t- took over the factory uh, and everything. So at some point, you know, they got this whole thing you Know going to a certain extent, but then it was way too late already.
0: Yeah, there's this, there's this, um, this myth of the Rüstungswunder from Speer, which has to a certain degree be debunked, but there's still discussion going on because some argue okay, he only continued what was already in place. So, so that Speer was basically he was really good in marketing and PR. I mean, he wrote his own book, which usually means.
1: He also ma- he also makes a very good case for himself in the World at War seventy three documentary series.
0: Yeah, I assume so. So and 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 how much was influenced and what, what I mean you had also you had like there was General Thomas with his department and there was the organization Todd, which then I think was and and then there was was later Speer from a more civilian point and. And you have really read into this because, yeah, it, it gets complicated because it, it's not only the military side, you have the inner political workings, the economy, the exploitation of the, the various resources and everything. And so, the
1: exploitation of the worker, forced labor and everything, of course. Yeah.
0: And, and, and this is, I mean, I think that the leading book in this regard is Adam II's Wages of Destruction. But he also. There, there's some argument about it that he focuses too much on, on certain aspects and there's some disagreement. I have to read the book fully and then compare it with some other works. There's always this, yeah, everyone has a different opinion and with history, you know, there's usually not a clear cut answer. No.
1: Uh, you know, so basically, basically, maybe to you know wrap this up since we just re- are about to reach an hour, um, just saying that you know also again this is a very good example on the and f- the first glimpse there's a lot of similarities and it's fun to you know compare these kind of things but i think if the more the deeper you dive into it the the more uh, pronounced the differences become and everything and you know it's of course you know it's, it's i think it's interesting to look at the relation between you know into total wars the relation between the industrial complex and the, and the state and the military but you know of course um, even though Hindenburg and Ludendorff also had some dictatorial aspirations by 1917 and everything, it's of course a very different situation from uh, yeah, from I, World War Two. I
0: would argue, I would argue, like I mean, this is what I generally think: the patterns are usually the same, the general patterns, the general processes, but they're they're different in their details. So the structure is similar, but the content is is different. You you could say you. You can't you there's there are only a few ways how you can build a house that is effective. But what what color the house is, what windows you put in, how the interior looks, this can be very different. And and I, I think the both World War One and Volvo Two were houses that were rather similar, but yeah, one has a computer with an internet connection. The other is just a personal computer without internet connection to a certain degree. To go back to an analogy from the beginning.
1: Yeah, cool. So um, I think uh, that, that's a good point to wrap it up. And I think it was a good summary. Um, maybe some people in the comments can, you know, uh, chip in and say, you know, find some other similarities. Uh, there's probably a lot more that we missed. And oh yeah, we didn't talk about tank tactics, but I have no clue. I'm yeah,
0: we didn't talk about the air war evolution yeah. versus revolution.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe we can uh, do that another time. Um, yeah. All right. So, have a nice afternoon. Then, I would say.
0: Thank you. You too. And thank you for having me.